and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I sprayed me in my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levitson. Really excited to share today's guest with you. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help me out. So I am doing a lot of executive coaching these days, and I'm launching a cohort in late June, early July, and I'm looking for a select few executives that would want to be a part of that cohort. So the cohort is one-on-one coaching. So it's me and you or your friend or whoever you think would be interested in something like this. And I'll coach them. I can coach them over Zoom uh, so they don't have to be in the DC area or in person. And I do 12 sessions with them. And at the end of it, we will bring the group together. There's going to be 10 people involved in the cohort and they're going to come together for a retreat. So I launched my first cohort in January. We're going to finish with our retreat in June and then we're going to launch a second cohort in late June, early July with the retreat being in December. So if you're interested in being coached by me and would like to also connect with other executives, uh, feel free to email me. My email is brian at blevinson.com and I can get you all the details on the cohort. I love doing it. The first cohort's going great. So if you or someone you know would be a good fit, feel free to reach out. Now to today's guest on the podcast. Spike Mendelson is a world-renowned chef. Uh, He has worked also with some of the top chefs in the world, including Thomas Keller, Sirio Massioni, which he's going to reference in this podcast, and Drew Nieperet. After making his television debut on Bravo TV's Top Chef, Spike went on to appear on several other cooking-related shows, including Life After Top Chef, Iron Chef America, Late Night Chef Fight, and Beat Bobby Flay. He also hosted Midnight Feast and Food Network's Kitchen Sink. So Chef uh, definitely has made a presence here in the Washington, D.C., where he opened up Good Stuff Eatery. He's since opened up uh, a number of other restaurants, including We the Pizza, Bernays and Santa Rosa Taqueria. So in the Washington DC area, he has a massive presence and it's not just because of his food and his restaurants, but he also has applied his experience and expertise as a chef and a restaurateur to work with several different brands as a consultant. And he also works 
with a number of people on policy. So he has a big passion for food equity and education uh, and putting that education into action. So he began working with organizations like CARE and DC Central Kitchen as a chef ambassador and contributor. His work has landed him the position as the first chairman of DC's Food Policy Council. Obviously, being in Washington, DC, you can make an impact other than just serving people delicious food, which we are very grateful for. He really has used his voice to speak out about improving the quality of school lunches, equal access to whole and healthy foods, and the protection of the SNAP program. So he's really big into uh, the food policy action world and works with groups like Food Rescue US and Food Policy Action, as I mentioned. So he wants to make a positive impact on our food system. And really this conversation is a lot about Spike's journey. He's lived and breathed food in the restaurant industry from the time he was a young kid growing up in Montreal, Canada. And he's also going to share what his mindset is like when he's preparing compared to when his mindset is when he's performing and how he really has thought about his restaurant journey and his chef journey and how it's shifted over the years. So Spike is a real guy. He's a curious guy and he's also willing to be vulnerable. And he clearly is still a work in progress. His humility which will come across the microphone in this conversation should be pretty obvious. And at the end of the day, Spike is just an intentional guy. He's intentionally trying to live the life that he wants to live, not just the life that others expect of him. And he's done massive things in the restaurant industry. And you get the sense that he's still trying to figure out exactly what path he wants to go down. So I'm so excited to present to you without further ado, Spike Emerson. Spike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Excited to have you here. We got connected by Seth Goldman. Great guy. We were both smiling about him. I think Seth, when he enters a room, just can make people have some energy and, and smile. He's somebody who is a unique guy with unique energy, and you feel it when you're in oh his God. presence. He's, I feel like he has like a halo, or he sees right through to your soul, and he is a very magical guy, right? When he walks into a room, he kind of lights it up like a combination of IQ and EQ mixed together because a lot of people that are really smart, which he's definitely really smart, yeah, don't also have the emotional capacity. Like a lot of times they need to be siloed. And when I was around him, like, like you're saying, there's just this presence, there's this ability to listen, but also to communicate. It's pretty it's special. Also, yeah. And it's disarming as, you know, like, you know, you know, if you're meeting with Seth for the very first time, you've probably like looked him up or like you know, read about him and you, you know, you start to build up kind of like this, this idea of what, you know, who you're going to meet, but then it's, uh, I think you're just, you're really thrown off guard on, on the wholesomeness that, that he is. And, you know, and, and, uh, you know, he really, uh, you know, he really acts out his life on what, you know, where his values are. So it's not for show, you know, a lot of people, their brands, their companies, there's a part of it that's kind of like fake it till you make it. But, but Seth, I think it's just, it's, it's honest. <laughs> what yeah. a beautiful place for us to start. Because yeah. I think in the 15 minutes that we just had to chat, you have that same quality. And uh, even different than Seth, you're in a world now where celebrity is a big part of the world that you're in. I mean, this idea of a celebrity chef is a thing. Yeah. And so I'm curious to try to unpack you a little bit and where your wholesomeness comes from, where your humility comes from. Can you give us a lens into your life as a child and what life was like for you growing up? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I was, I'm from Montreal, 
you know uh I, you know i was raised in a um uh a greek greek family uh, well greek and jewish family gruish uh, uh my mother uh, ha- you know remarried when she when i was very young uh to a jewish man which is my father and i grew up in both religions um but uh you know i always tell people i grew up in a subculture because uh my 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 entire family was in the restaurant business so, so you know I, I was literally around uh hospitality and kitchens and um just the business uh my entire life uh you know um it's often when other kids were maybe playing and and doing sports or playing video games i was i was often washing dishes or at my parents restaurant you mentioned mom remarried so your biological dad not yeah. in the picture do you know him no yeah my biological dad is is you know uh, I, I don't really know him uh, he's he's um, you know never never really met him um, and i don't you know i don't really have too much too much angst with that like it's nothing that really brings me uh you know it used to maybe trouble me a little bit when i was younger but um you know there's no real voids to fill in my life i think you know there's there's i I feel very lucky you know we were talking about luck a little bit earlier i just feel very lucky uh as a human being on this world and uh, i've gone to have so many good experiences through life um which is you know, have traveled through food, really, you know, food has kind of like been the, the common denominator in my life in one way or another, whether it was, you know, setting the standards for how I act at a table and, and how I grew up, you know, uh, looking at food and how much I appreciated it to, uh, you know, turn, making it a business. Uh, and then after making it a business, using it for a little celebrityness, And, and now, you know, we do, I, I do food food policy stuff. So it's kind of, food's always kind of been the conduit to uh, my experiences through life. So what kind of restaurant did they have? So my family had a lot of restaurants in Montreal. Uh, we had uh, French brasserie restaurants. We had Greek restaurants, Italian restaurants. Um, we had famous restaurant called Le, Le Trois Rouge, which was my grandfather's. Uh, and I, I grew up uh, ha- kind of hanging out in that, in that restaurant in the scene. Uh, they currently own own Schwartz's, which I'm not sure if you know, but it's a famous deli. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you go into Schwartz's and you just get a stack of meat and then they put the rye on the side. And I actually have a t-shirt from, we did my, my younger brother's bachelor party in Montreal. And that was definitely, I think what we did was we actually got it to go and then walked up to the park, uh, up the street and, and had pastrami and, and or whatever the meat they call it. Smoked meat. Smoked meat. Yeah. Yes. Don't call it pastrami. Yeah, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Jewish guy from the DC area. That's like what, what we do. But yeah, yeah well, it's it, corned beef and it's corned beef and pastrami here, right? Uh, it's always kind of amazed me how um, smoked meat has never really crossed the border in any any big way. It's not really quite understood in the states. Yeah, can you explain it to me? Uh, I I don't know. I actually don't know if I can. It, <laughs> it, it's I think it's um you know. I do know that the pickling spice and uh, the seasonings that we use uh, in smoked meat, the Canadian version, uh, are different than what you get from pastrami and, and corned beef. Um, and then, uh, you know, it definitely has something to do with the, with the way you cook it and how long and all these kind of things. But it's uh, it's very different from your traditional pastrami or, or corned beef. It's, it's in a category in its own, and it's got a really nice extra spice and fat content to it. So. 
delicious. Anyone who goes to Montreal, it's kind of a must-go-to yeah, type that, spot. Yeah, that and poutine, and you're, you're set. <laughs> and I'm much more of a Schwartz's fan than poutine. Not that poutine isn't also delicious, but uh, you give me a, a meat sandwich, and I'm, yeah. I'm good to go, and I'll fall asleep a couple hours later. Um, so you grew up in this family, though, that's a mixture of Greek and, you said, Jewish. Yeah. Did you have any religious framework uh, that you guys were working off of? Uh, well, you know... You know, I have to say I was I was brought up Gruish. You know, we celebrated. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say we were the most religious family. We we went through the steps of of you know going to synagogue when you should go to synagogue and going to you know to the Greek church when we're supposed to go to Greek church, like for Easter. Like we, that was this past Sunday. Or, uh, uh, but you know enough to have a really great knowledge about it. I was bar mitzvah as a young child, so uh, you know I, I actually had to. Um, you know, learn everything in six months. And, uh, and so I was able to read from the Torah, which was, was crazy. Uh, um, you know, as growing up as a kid, you know, the, I think you go to, you go to school like for a while, right. To, to study. I did, I did way too much, <laughs> way too much. Right. Like you go, you go to school for a while. So like imagine that, uh, you know, what happened was, is like, you know, I had a, a wealth of restaurant experience in, in Montreal. I grew up, that's kind of, you know, where I went to school. I was brought up in, uh, this French Canadian world, right back back then in Montreal, it was very the separatists were a real thing. It was very strong in my childhood. So, you know, there was uh, some drama that was happening, and my family decided to take an opportunity to move to Spain. So we kind of uprooted our lives uh, when I was twelve uh, and moved to Spain uh, to do uh, the World's Fair there. Uh, my parents had scored a contract and. My big family, like 15 of us, had scored this contract at the World's Fair to open about, I don't know, 16 to 20 restaurants. Um, so right when you're kind of peaking and you're starting to become a teen, you know, I kind of got yanked out of out of Montreal and, and you know, all of a sudden in a foreign country, um, starting to learn a different, you know, language and uh, different schools, different friends, different way of life. Um, it was pretty kind of, it was quite shocking at a young age, you know, at that, at that age to, to see that. But uh, Are your parents free spirited? What, what, what allowed them to make that jump? Uh, I think it was just a, you know, I, I, I'd have to say, yes, my parents are free spirited. They, they've loved to travel, uh, their entire lives. Um, I just think it was like a huge, op- like it was an opportunity, you know, it was an opportunity that came across, uh, that they kind of, uh, you know, they just went for and, and um, it, it was a hard one to score, right? There was like a lot of, you know, as I remember, there was a lot of back and forth with like, you know, the the Prince of Spain and like these contracts and going, you know, to be able to score that contract, they kind of, uh, you know, w- willed it. Um, and then I think, you know, the, the rest of the family just took a chance on the, you know, on, on doing it. And it was just, we just kind of went there. It was, it was, I don't think there was too much rhyme or reason other than business, you know. Um, and how many siblings do you have? I have uh, a sister named Micheline Mendelssohn, and then I have a uh, two two uh, stepsisters, okay, Nancy and Jennifer. So, and how did they impact your upbringing? Uh, well, you know, M- Micheline, my you know my biological sister, has always been my one of my greatest supports. So she's you know she's like a older by a year, and and uh, we went through all this kind of together. You moved to Spain, and you know. Uh, our, our lives were, you know, I think we became even closer when we kind of, uh, you know, jump ship. Where in Spain did you go? We were in Sevilla. Yep. We were in Sevilla and, uh, you know, it was a magnificent experience. You know, I got to, um, you know, I actually worked the fair as a young child. I, I, you know, worked in the restaurants. I got to, 
you know, got a, a VIP pass to get in and out of any pavilion that you would want to. Uh, you know, it was just kind of living a very renegade, like, you know, young teen lifestyle in Spain, you know, was, there's no rhyme or reason of like who I was in Spain, you know, uh, it, it was just, I was just, you know, as when you're like 11 to 12, I think you're, sh you're starting to try to figure out who you are. You know, or, you know, if you're going to be part of pop culture or this kind of music or what have you and like you uproot to a different country, it's really, really shocking. Right. Like, what am I supposed to do now? Just like play football, you know, uh, or, you know, soccer, I guess, you know, and uh, it, it was kind of a shock, shock for me. But I think it really gave me like a, a world view. You know, I was exposed to a different culture. I was exposed to a different cuisine. Um, you know, it, it, you know, it kind of kind of prepared me for the rest of my life, uh, you know, on, on, you know, what means the most to me, which right now, you know, you know, fast forward food and travel are the, my two most favorite things to do. It's what I enjoy. It's, it's what my career is all about. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, young age. How long were you in Spain for? We were there about three years. And then you come back to Montreal afterwards. We actually, you know, from Spain, we actually moved, uh, to Florida. Uh, my, uh, my grandparents were there. Um, my parents, you know, um, had finished their business in Spain and they were looking for their next thing. Um, eventually, uh, that's kind of where, um, Pepin's, uh, which is the restaurant that I grew up in for a good 15 years, uh, is, is the restaurant that they bought. And I kind of started, you know, working in every day. So what made your parents good at the restaurant industry? You know, it's truly a subculture, uh, the restaurant industry. You either get it or you don't, right? Lots of people uh, celebrate it that, like, it's something very, uh, uh, you know, there's, like, there's there's these parts of, like, the restaurant business that I think people are attracted to, which is, like, the celebration and, like, the, you know, the cocktailing and the dinner parties and all these kind of things. But the back-of-house maintenance of the restaurant industry is hell, right? Uh, and... Uh, I think my father was really not very experienced in it. He kind of got a very quick education from my mother. Uh, my mother was a kitchen a kitchen rat. She grew up in the business just like I did. Uh, her father, you know, used to make her, you know, have her work on the line, and and uh, you know, my mother can actually really get down and cook in a you know in a you know high tense uh, restaurant kitchen. Uh, my father was more uh, an accountant and understood numbers, uh, and then together they kind of formed this really great partnership, uh, which I've been very fortunate to watch grow. Uh, you know, which is the you know their their business. You know, uh, you know he handled what he did, and my mother did what they did. But they were always, you know, the the really interesting th thing about them is that they they always looked at the restaurant business like show business, right? It always needed you needed to be on uh, and. Uh, you know, they just kind of hustled it, which was which was fun. You know, they I remember they go, them going to the American Music Awards when I was younger, and they used to go for like five, I think five years in a row, and they used to come back with all these like pictures of famous people, right? That they went to the awards and they went to VIP party, and they'd have all these pictures, and they were super dressed up and celebrity looking, right? My parents just like amazing, and they would frame all these pictures and hang them in our restaurant in the lobby, right? So like over the course of time, you'd see like 30 to 40 restaurants of celebrities in the restaurant. My parents look magnificent. They look like rock stars. And then every time so like a customer came into the restaurant, my father would take him from the host stand and he'd go show him like the wall of fame and like all these 
you know, celebrities supposedly ate at our restaurant. Not really, right? Like they all came in, they knew him personally. So it was just like this huge show business to to the side of our restaurants that uh, I always found very interesting growing up. You know, like it. You know, you watch, you see this, and you're like, wow, this is this is so cool. As you're growing up, any thoughts on what you wanted to do as an adult? Did you? How, how did you think about that? Yeah, well, listen. When you're born into the industry, uh, and um, you know you're you're constantly put in the dish pit, and you're, you know your friends are jet skiing and you're sautéing stuff, it's just like you don't want to be in the business, right? I fought very hard to try to get out of the business. You know, I begged my parents to to go to film school. I wanted to be a, a famous film producer. You know, I wanted to make movies. Um, you know, I I wanted to do anything but be a chef. To be honest with you, uh, you know, it was long hours it wasn't you know a very uh, glorified career at the time it was, there wasn't too many celebrity chefs when i was super young right um so i tried everything not to get into the business i you know i messed around in clubs and you know i i had lost myself for a good amount of you know time you know like a couple couple good years of just not, you know not knowing at all what i want to do or who i was and what age were you when that was um, I'd say I was, you know, I, I was 18 years old when I, I left, you know, left home, kind of started doing my own thing. And, and, um, you know, I had been, I had been going to military school in St. Petersburg. Uh, you know, my sister was in a public school and I went to a private school. Uh, I think my parents thought that was better aligned for me. Uh, and then shortly after I finished that experience, I kind of just wanted to, explode a little bit i was like very confined and and uh you know i wasn't in jail or anything but just the thought of military school at a young age and it was just it you know i look back on it it was the greatest thing I ever did right which is weird when you're in it you're like why am i in military school right it's like the worst thing ever um what did it give you oh my god it it gave me the order that i needed it, it gave in my life um you know not in, in any strict point, you know, but very, you know, um, when you're a chef, you know, there's this term called mise en place, right? I know, are you familiar with the, the term? It's, it's French for uh, your things need to be in order. Um, and it's very crucial to the success of your restaurant, to the success of, uh, of the way you approach the business. Uh, in in my opinion, uh, it, it doesn't only go. It only it doesn't just break down to like the things I need on my salad station, right? Like I need these chives, I need these salt, salt, I need these olives to make this plate. Mise en place is like, if I'm gonna have a good night on the line, I'm gonna have everything in order, and and in place is the direct translation, right? Uh, military school taught me that at a very very young age, right? Just to have everything in order, you know, make your bed, shine your shoelaces. Like these are the things you're you're gonna need today to succeed, and be awesome. Uh, and instead of parlaying that into a military career, I kind of just parlayed parlayed it into my life and applied it to the kitchen. Like if you go to one of my kitchens, everyone knows I'm very OC, very OCD. Like everything needs to be in order. Like the pots need to be where the pots need to be. You know, like and I spend probably 80% of my life rearranging everything in order. Um, and I think that's really, you know, uh, you know, it just showed me a lot of success. It actually military school kind of prepared me for the, the, the training that I got in France when I finally 
went to do my apprenticeship in the north of France and you know I walked into uh, as an American child with l no experience I walked into a French kitchen a three Michelin star kitchen and it's, it's kind of ran like a military right it's like these guys are you know their their chef chef shoes need to be shined your pants need to be pressed your shirt needs to be perfect and starched and you know you have to have your, all your knives sharpened things need to be in order on your station so it, you know, I always look at military school as kind of setting the standard for myself, for my career, uh, which is the restaurant business. It's so interesting. I, before we fired up the mics, I was telling you about a framework that I use, which is your mindset for preparation is actually different than your mindset for performance. So in preparation, the word perfect is, I feel like people keep saying, don't be perfect, don't be perfect, don't be perfect. But as I'm hearing you set up your kitchen, it has to be perfect. And... When you're performing, and I'm sure you're in the kitchen and you're actually doing the gig, you need to be adaptable. And so perfectionism, really useful in preparation. But if you try to then be perfect when you're actually cooking, I'm sure there is, uh, it's probably not going to work out too well. It, it's actually great. I love the way you, you put that. I mean, yeah, the, the more you can strive for perfection in a kitchen while you're prepping, before before the, the craziness ensues, the the more success you're going to have through that night. Because yes, throughout a night, you need to be able to adjust, right? Like, uh, what you know, what happens if uh, everyone decides to come in and order like your special, you know, one item off the menu you don't have it anymore, or you know, something got burnt, or you know, like so. Kitchen is always kind of minimizing mistakes. And making sure you can, you know, produce the type of food and the service that you want. Um, the preparation that you have, if you have a mentality of going into it being perfect and have everything, everything set up, it's going to minimize any disaster that you might encounter and you'll be able to fix it a lot quicker, right? You know, the, 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 the greatest criticism I have with cooks in my kitchen, still to this day, is that they don't pre prepare themselves enough for their shift, right? Because I'm the type of guy, when I was brought up, when you walk into a kitchen, right, you want to work like an animal to prep out your station, to prep up whatever you need in the restaurant, uh, and then you want it to be like a dance during service. You literally want to be able to maybe put your earphones in, right, listen to music in your orders, and it just becomes like an orchestra, right? And you're just like... This dish is coming in, it's salt, it hits the pan, it goes in the oven. It's like a lot of repetition, right, in the kitchen. It's like one step leads to another, to another, to a finished product. So to me, the adrenaline rush that I get out of working the line or working in the kitchen is if I can get set up so well that my service is just like seamless, right? And I just like, I just have, I have a great time. Like it's, it's kind of like you're, you're dancing, you're, you're, you know, and and uh, I always refer to that. People think I'm, I may, you know, maybe I'm crazy, but, but it, it's it's a dance, right? It's it, it really is, and um, you know, uh, especially if you have a couple other cooks, like you know, by you, there's like certain steps that you have to take to make sure you don't injure that person, or you know. But again, at the same time, you need to push food out, and you need to have like this kind of this this rhythm, uh, and and that's kind of what makes the best kitchens in the world, right? The kitchens that can have the best preparation, be adaptable when they need to be, but then have such a beautiful, consistent rhythm in their kitchen. Um, when you talk about chefs like, you know, Daniel Hum, 11 Madison Park, or, or um, you know, Alain Ducasse, or Daniel Ballou, or any of these greats, right? Um, 
their kitchens flow like a, you know, like a dance. How do you shift from that perfectionism to the adaptability? Is there anything specific that you do in perfectionism to get into that space and then to shift into adaptability when it's time and the lights are on and it's go time? Yeah. Well, you know, like uh, I'm a huge, uh, you know, I think a lot of chefs and a lot of restaurants, uh, they do like a pre-shift, right? And they, they want to be able to, to get their the soldiers in order and get every, you know get all the information out there uh, to to the cooks or to the wait staff that you know everything they need to know for that that night of service right um, this business is literally like repetitive right you do it one day you're gonna come back in and you're gonna do it all over again you're gonna come back and do it all over again the, you know the, the thing is to try to get better and better and better as you go through through every night um, but you know. I think there needs to be like a certain amount of, you know, uh, I, I feel like cooks or beat themselves too. Like they get too much into the mistake or like something easily can throw their night. You know, if, if something, uh, a dish comes back, right. We served you a dish. Like this guy's been in his rhythm all night long, this and that you sent your dish back. It was undercooked. Right. Uh, I think there's a human element when cooking food and I hate for restaurant kitchens, um, businesses to apply it as like, it's like a, a, you know, like a, um, uh, what's the word, Uh, an assembly line. It's just not assembly line. There's like a human element to your food and soul that need that you're cooking. So I always try to make my cooks understand that like, it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to get something back. Right. Uh, it's an opportunity to correct it or wow that person's experience even better. Right. Um, any types of mistake, I, I always try to look at them as opportunities to to make an even better impression on someone. It's awesome. I, one of the other binaries is being critical in preparation, but encouraging in performance. Uh, one of the other ones is serious in preparation, but fun in performance. And what I've found in my practice is a lot of people are doing it the opposite way. So they're trying to be perfect in performance, and then they're just adapting in preparation, or uh, they're making you know, the preparation really fun, but then they get in the kitchen or in your sense, the kitchen really serious. Mm -hmm. So a basketball player, all right, this is the game. We have to now be really serious. And they tense up as a result. And the other issue I see is a lot of people bringing this preparation mind into the performance. So just use those binaries, right? So they are now serious in performing and and they're too serious. Uh, They're now perfectionist. Now they're trying to be perfect when they actually need to be adaptable. Yeah. So finding that shift and the ability to shift uh, is what I love. That's where I love to play. That's my sandbox. That's my kitchen. And I find that often the messaging that we give people, for example, don't be afraid to fail. Okay, well, if you're taking that approach in preparation, then you're not going to have your house in order, right? You want to be fearless when we're actually doing the thing. But fearlessness and preparation can really be harmful. Humility like humility, great trait. We started this conversation talking about humility. Yeah. But if you're in the kitchen and you're humble and you're not confident, you're you're gonna just question. And you yeah. know, if you're curious, like curiosity, one of the best links to success in the world. But performing is less about asking why and more about asking how. How can we make this the best that we can be? Yeah. So that's. I know you wrote a book, so I want to chat about yeah. what it's like to be a book. But that's the book I just finished 
I'm announcing this yeah. to the world. I didn't, write, I probably I didn't write a book. I, it's a cookbook. It's a cookbook. It's <laughs> yeah, the same it's thing. Recipes. <laughs> I was about to say. There's no like, you're not taking much knowledge out of that other yeah, than recipes. But you're, putting, but you're putting yourself out there yes. in a way and you yeah. make yourself vulnerable. And for me, that process of putting something out there and in a book and it's finite and it's now like, this is what I think. Uh, there, as you said, we're always evolving. We're always progressing. Yeah. There's something so finite about a book that is scary yeah. um, because you don't know if I say something that 10 years from now, I'll be like, wait a second. I think you actually should do it a different way. Yeah. So how much, how much of your practice I'd be interested to know? Do you, do you, I mean, because, you know, I, I would imagine every athlete or, you know, every human is different and they have, they, t- they take different to certain types of preparations. Right. Um, so for me, like you, you mentioned humility and, and, um, you know, that's a tactic that has worked for me, for, for me, for, uh, in the past. Right. Uh, uh, and I've tried to apply it to others. Sometimes it hasn't worked as well, but I remember when, you know, I was in the North of France working in this three Michelin star restaurant, you know, I, uh, I, I would, you know, work every single station. Um, you know, you know, they, they kind of moved me around. But they were, they, you know, the French were, you know, were very excited about having one American in their kitchen. Let me tell you, right? It was like the jokes would never stop. The humility would never stop. Um, but through that humiliation, uh, I think they realized that I, I could take it and it actually drove me to want to prove them wrong, right? Uh, like I was trying to make a statement. Um but you know, and so the, so for me, humility kind of pushed me to get better and and to be more on top of it. And then also, like one something that was very humiliating in, in the restaurant is when I was in the you know I did I was doing the pastry uh, for about a month in this castle, and uh, you have to make a souffle, uh, a recipe for a souffle. But souffle is nothing you can really pre- prep ahead of time too long. It's kind of like a minute recipe. And I had a, uh, you know, a Parisian pastry chef with a very heavy French accent. And uh, he, he told me, you know, he barked out an order and I thought he told me to prepare like this, you know, a double order of a souffle. Um, and, you know, of course, you know, I rushed to prepare the souffle and what have you. And when it came time to pipe and produce, he's, uh, I had piped out four or I think it was six souffles. And he came back in the kitchen and he was very, you know, in his Parisian voice, he was very upset. Uh, I guess I had heard a full recipe and he wanted me to actually do a half recipe. He was very annoyed that I had, I, I wasn't listening enough to listen to exactly what he said. He didn't want any food wasted, right? That's three Michelin star restaurant. They want everything done in order. Uh, and I remember he was so upset that he took the rest of the souffle bag and just squirted it all over my uniform. And all over my face. And, you know, you can imagine I was a a young child in a kitchen, in a French kitchen, in a basement, you know, uh, not quite understanding the language. And my chef had just like literally, you know, uh, you know, just destroyed me with the rest of the the ingredients. And then proceeded to like have me take my shirt off, which I was wearing, you know, like an undershirt and like mop the kitchen and clean up the mess and all these things. But it always stood out as this massive lesson to me in life and that I've like... of applied, you know, um, I always look back at that and I felt like I was humiliated, but I, I also felt that I didn't make such a big deal about it. And I took the lesson, you know, uh, and 
kind of transition into like a positive effect in my life. And I think he, he didn't expect that. I think he expected me to like break, cry, run away, get very angry or what have you. Uh, but it was all this humility that are, had already ensued with all the, the regular cooks and like, you know, everyone in the kitchen that I was just like, whatever, it's, it's, it's part of my life today, right? Uh, and my relationship with that chef that day on, with that pastry chef, just took, went to another level. And I still talk to him this, to this day. And like, we've had many opportunities together. We've cooked together. And it was just like, it's just funny. I like little small things in life. Sometimes the right type of person can take a different style of lesson so my question to you to get back to is like how do you decipher like if a, a person needs to be perfect during you know perfect or, or not perfect during preparation before i answer that what was your main takeaway from that experience what did you learn from that experience For the, from the 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 in france or just that that one that one moment you said you said i'll uh, never make a double recipe of a flake <laughs> yeah you know but no i listened that that uh, you know, my biggest takeaway was I was surprised on how um, how passionate he had been for such a little little amount of food waste, right? That he was so upset that I wasted like you know these ingredients and like went and like so upset that I took the time to make this extra portion of it uh, that that you know he wanted me you know to really let me know and, and make it a memory and you know um, this is you know and and in my life now in the kitchens, um, you know, I'm always repeating orders, you know, double checking and always making sure I got the right information for the task at hand. So uh, what I'm hearing from you is the power, the importance of communication, the importance of listening and talking and the attention to detail yeah. and how important it is. It's something that it might not seem like a big deal. We like, those little things matter, yeah. and we care about those little things right. in this culture and in this environment. And not to assume if you don't really 100% know. Interesting. You know, like... So ask a question if you don't know. Yeah, you know, just like it's it's better it's better to get the, the proper information before, you know. Okay. Uh, all right, now I'll answer your question. Uh, so first of all, I don't think anything is one size fits all. Yeah. I don't think anything ever is in a vacuum. So for me, I've got these binaries and I would say there's about 40 of them. The book will be less than that. And the book will be each binary that I think is the one that I see most often. So for example, let's just use perfectionism as you're talking about it. Um, yeah, I, I, if I had a client that said, actually, I don't need to worry about being perfect in preparation, we would have a conversation and they might be right. So for me, in my work as a coach, I think that everyone that I work with has an inner genius and knows themselves better than I'll ever know them. And so for me, it's about asking questions and providing frameworks um, so that they can be the best version of themselves and whatever that looks like for them. Yeah. So I am, that's part of the other, there's probably fear for me in putting a book out because... Um, you know, I, I think, uh, the idea of the self-help world and here's the solution, here's how, 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 like, I, I, I struggle with that because yeah. I think each person has their own how and their own way of doing it. Yeah. Um, but I also believe that we don't have a conversation about your mindset for preparation and your mindset for performance. And so that's what I want that book to be about. That's a lot about this podcast is to just provide data, information, theory, some research and let people find their own way. So much less likely to tell someone exactly that they have to do it a certain way and much more likely to bring up 
here's why I think this way. But if you think differently, that's cool. What I actually find is that most of my clients, specifically the athletes, the biggest challenge they have is that they bring this preparation mind into the performance. And it makes sense because we spend so much time in preparation. Mm. And so they'll bring in humility when actually they're at the free throw line at the end of the game. They don't need to be humble in that moment. They actually need to have an inner arrogance, this belief that they're important, that they matter. And so I find our society really props up humility and puts down arrogance. Generally speaking, not always the case, especially if you look at power dynamics, Mm. specifically in this country right now. Um, But I think generally speaking, we're telling our kids to be humble. And that's something that we think of as a good quality and arrogance as a bad quality. And my point in writing the book is to get people to think about when. So when are we humble and when are we arrogant? And actually think about it. Like w- I love that. When? Yeah. What environment? What does this environment yeah. call for? So yeah. there might be a time where it's so yeah, true. Go ahead. It, I mean, what you say. I mean, like, listen. Like, uh, I, you know, uh, I always laugh at. Well, not laugh, but I, I always, I, you know, I always kind of. I'm skeptical of the people that want like a through and through humble kitchen. Like we're supposed to hold each other's hands. There's not going to be any drama. I'm like, guys, get real. We're in an intense situation here, right? Like there's got to be someone that that has the ego enough to run the kitchen, right? Uh, And I think I've been on both of those spectrums. I've been that that French guy working in classical French restaurant, Michelin star, whether it was like at Le Cirque or in the north of France or for Thomas Keller. It was We Chef. Everyone called each other on their shit. Like if you didn't, weren't ready for your station, every every single person knew about it and called you out about it. And transparency. Transparency. It was like, you know, and it was humiliating at times. Um, and it was an ego-driven kitchen. Like I'm better than you. I'm better than, than you know, my, my station's set up better than you. I can do this salad better than you. I can cook better than you. And it served a, a very great, great purpose at that time for, for my life personally. You know, I'm the one that worked hard to apply to work at a place like this, right? So, um, you know, I wasn't forced into it. Um, but then there's been a huge part of my life where I haven't been the competitive guy, right? I, 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 I didn't really ever care about winning, for instance, right? It was, it was um, you know, I took a very much laid back approach to running a kitchen. Um, and, you know, I think I enjoyed that more, right? I think I got that, I got more out of, more of, more out of that for my life, right? Um, but there's definitely these instances when I like go back and forth, even to this day, like sometimes I walk into my restaurant right now and I'm firing off, right? I'm being the, the egomaniac chef because I need to be in that instance. So I'm heard uh, and I try to do it, you know, Obviously, you know, as polite as possible, but like you hear it, there's a different, there's a different level to my voice. There's a different level to the things I'm shouting out. Uh, and then sometimes I'll, you know, come around and I'll take this, this little bit laid back approach and, and, and try to have a lesson and something that a little bit more meaningful for people to take away from the day. Um, it's definitely a dance for me where I go from back and back, but that's kind of why I think it's made me a very well-rounded chef for my life. Uh, uh, you know, I've, I've been in those three Michelin star restaurants. I've been on a reality show and I have fast casual restaurants. So for me, I've kind of done the gamut of the industry from like, you know, and I've done everything in between as well. So, um, you know, I think I, I always think there's a, there's a, you know, there's a place for, for the ego, uh, when needed. So, yeah, 
I agree with you. There's a book called Ego is the Enemy by a guy named Ryan Holiday. He wrote another book that's called The Obstacle is the Way, which is a popular book. And you actually fall in line with The Obstacle is the Way when you're telling that story about the chef throwing the ingredients in your face because you took that obstacle and you went toward it rather than ran away from it. But I like I agree. I've read this book, Ego is the Enemy, and I, I really love Ryan's book, The Obstacle is the Way, yeah. but I take some issue with The Ego is the Enemy because I think ego is part of the human experience. And I think we have emotions for different things and for different reasons. Like if you have a family member that passes away, you probably should have some sadness, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you don't have sadness, that's probably not very healthy for you. Uh, And we think of sadness as being bad, but it's not, it can be helpful Mm -hmm. and fear. Like if we had no fear, we wouldn't look both ways before we cross the street. We might eat bacon cheeseburgers every single day with a milkshake, which might taste good, but yeah. there's consequences to that. So um, I, I love polarity. I love the power of and. Um, and when I'm hearing you talk, it, it reminds me of coaches that say, I'm going to treat everybody different, but hold everybody accountable. Yeah. So they know what they're going to hold people accountable for, but they know that this person might need a little boot in the ass and this person might need an arm around their shoulder. Yeah. And they're consciously thinking about or constantly thinking about how do I get the most out of this team and the mixture of those ingredients to yeah. bring out the, the most of the team. You mentioned TV, so I'd love to just go there. Yeah. What's it like to go from, you know, being a chef mm-hmm. and going on a TV show? And um, I'd love to also just hear about what it's like to to have this celebrity chef thing come about and um, just your general thoughts on all sure, that Sure, ab- absolutely. Um, okay, well, the power of TV is huge. Um so we'll, we'll give you a, a glimpse of like where my head at, my head was at for my career. I was driven by famous chefs, the Jack Pepins, the Serios, Mascioni's, Restaurateurs, uh, Gerard Bourrier, Thomas Keller, all these guys, right? When you say driven, driven to be like them, or yes, how were you thinking that? Was about like, that? that was kind of what I was like, well, if I'm doing this, right? Uh, you know, and I'm reading The Apprentice, a ship by Jacques Pepin, and he talks about how he grew up in a kitchen, and he talks about like, you know, making a stock when he was 13. I'm like, well, I'm that guy, I'm that kid, right? So like, there was a, there was a, there was a lot of uh, resemblance to these guys I looked up to, how they started off in the industry, right? And uh, to me, that always kind of gave me the confidence. I was like, oh, I'm gonna be a Michelin star chef one day because like. This is my path. This was their path. I'm reading about their path. There's a lot of similarities, right? Just out of curiosity, what would your mom and dad say when you would make those types of declarations? Well, they were very supportive because um, the weir- the weirder part about it is that when I finally, um, when I did go work at Lake Creere, which which was that Michelin star restaurant that kind of set the standards for my life, I always look back onto that experience. Um, my parents had uh, uh, just by chance stumbled upon this this chateau 10 years previous on their honeymoon or however many years previous on their honeymoon um and they had a menu signed by the chef for years years and years in 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 our in our um in our house and my mother always kind of jokes she's like if you ever want to be a real chef she's like you're gonna go train there one day and for years, she would tell me, like, you know, this menu, I would look at this menu while eating breakfast, whatever, Gerard Boyer. I always knew of this guy, Gerard Boyer. So when I finally made the shift in my life when I was 18, 19, I was done, like, doing all the, the dumb stuff. I was like, okay, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go to culinary school. 
I went to culinary school and then there was an opportunity to get an externship. Uh, and, you know, most ex- externships at the Culinary Institute are done in the United States with approved sites like the Ritz-Carlton or this restaurant or what have you. But I was fixated on taking my externship on the north of France. And I every day I'd call like at three o'clock in the morning states. I'd call there. I'd bother the chef. I'd say, hey, I want an externship. And for eight months straight, that 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 chef would just deny me. And finally, nine months, you know, nine months, I think like I had maybe two weeks to finally submit an extern. I finally called and he's like, oh, putain, in French. She's like, please just leave me alone. He's like, I'm going to send you your acceptance letter, your acceptance letter. So by myself, literally, I don't know if it was the antagonizing of my mother all those years, but I was like fixated on on working at Lake Carrière for Gerard Boyer. Right. It was kind of like that path had been chosen for me and I was just going to go for it. Um, and I got an accepted le- acceptance le- letter and I went and worked there for a year and I got the most amazing experience out of my life. I just but I always found it very awkward that like this was like part of my life before I even knew it. And it was like something that had always been said. And um, I'm a huge believer in manifestation, uh, big, big time believer. And like for me, it's like if you put it out there in the world and you're consistent, and you're persistent, and you keep going for it and going for it, this thing will manifest. You know, uh, it, it, you know, to enter the celebrity chef also took actually uh, manifestation uh, on my own part. Uh, I actually had to go through the application part uh, process twice to get approved there. But um, I didn't know what, what the celebrity chef world was. I had no clue what I was getting myself into. I had traveled all over the world, uh, I was fixated on becoming a Michelin star chef. I was only working for the the top chefs, Thomas Keller, Gerard Boyer, the Mascioni family. Then I was working for Drew Nipperant in New York. I was destined to be a Michelin star chef. Like that was, that was that's what I was gonna do. There was, you know, there was no, no other way. Uh, and it came to a point when I was in New York, I was a little burnt out of the scene of just the everyday you know, hustle. Uh, you know, I was in New York for about six years. Uh, my sister was a massive fan of Top Chef. She told me to watch it. I watched it. I told her, I was like, I'm not going to go throw my career away on a reality show. Uh, didn't really pay too much attention to it until uh, I saw a friend on it, which was Marcel on season two. I was like, Marcel is doing this. If Marcel is doing this, then there's got to be something fun. So, um, you know, stepped, you know, blindfully into uh TV and uh, you you know I had to get a real quick education on what that meant uh, after it aired uh, which means is I had no clue on how to deal with uh, being an overnight celebrity uh, you know season four top chefs brand was probably a, it's at its ultimate peak it just started really peaking so you know we got a ton a ton of press out of it in marketing and uh, most people my age don't know what to do with it I actually really didn't know you know what to do with it too much but my sister had a plan and uh so did my family uh they knew kind of how to harness the marketing and the pr value that we were going to get out of a show like this and uh they kind of just kind of conv- talked to me and convinced me to come to dc and um take an opportunity and open a restaurant get back in the family business why dc uh my sister had been working here okay she'd been working for the canadian embassy for about 10 years and she you know came to a point where she wanted something different in her life 
uh, and this location on Capitol Hill came about, there was nothing on Capitol Hill. Like there was no Michelin restaurant on, you know, Rose's Luxury or there was nothing happening there. Um, and we just took an opportunity and, and um, opened a restaurant uh, and we did what we know what, how to do best. And uh, this time it wasn't going to be such a serious restaurant. It was going to be a fast casual restaurant um, with a celebrity chef attached to it. And it was going to be one of the first of its kind. You know? Why did you go that path? Because that goes against sort of, you said there's these three elements. You have this drive to become a Michelin star. That's a lot of your background. And you've got the reality TV come in. And now you're you're going toward this fast casual. Yeah. Why? I think I had been in New York. In New York, I had gotten a real taste of, of the scene, of what it meant to be, you know, uh, you know, start from nothing and try to climb your way to, to being a three Michelin star. I, w- I wouldn't say I was jaded, you know, after, you know, you have to understand, like, a lot of people get in this business at, you know, after high school or college, for instance, or, or what have you. I've been in this business since I was five, you know, like, not in the business, but I've been around the business since I was, my whole entire life, I've been working in the business since I was 10. So, uh, I reached a point in my life where, like, I was kind of, um, not completely jaded, but I was just looking to see what, like I wanted to see what else was out there for me. And I figured Top Chef would be something fun for a couple months. I considered it a vacation, really. I didn't know it was going to change the course of my life forever. Uh, um, and uh, and that's what it did. I, I, you know, I was like, well, you know, I did the show. Like, you know, I've always trusted my family in the business. And they're like, why don't you just, you know, take a break? And, you know, you know you're not getting, you know, um, you know, I enjoyed working for Drew and where I was doing, but I wasn't really making too too many advancements in where I wanted to go there. So I just took a, a risk, and I convinced two of my friends that were working with me there at the time to move down and open this restaurant. And then as soon as we came down here, the show aired, and all these opportunities started flowing in. And not only did I have a restaurant to be able to leverage it and make it, you know, uh, have some longevity out of this, um, just, you know... I, one thing after the other started coming in and um, I think it all went to my head for a while. You know, um, I think I, you know, the, I was very humble at the beginning, you know, for a couple of years with the restaurant, but then like the, the true part of celebrity started to set in where you get recognized and you get in these big gigs and like, why should I spend so much time at my restaurant when I have like, I can go do like fly, do this one gig for this amount of money. And um, it was interesting how, you know, the family dynamic part of it was very tough to swallow. You know, I was thrown back into the family restaurant. They've known me forever. All of a sudden, I'm a celebrity chef. Um, I'm getting so your mom and dad also involved? Oh, yeah, big time. So mom, dad, and sister... Are all involved in the business. But your likeness, or whatever you want to call it, helps propel... Help propel. Yeah, help propel everything. So, uh, But their experience and life in the business help me be able to harness that and propel it. So it worked, but I'm the only one getting the credit, right? So it was another life lesson. Like all of a sudden, not only was I not like used to the celebrity-ness and all this kind of stuff, then now I wasn't used to getting like all the credit for these restaurants that the whole family was running, you know, uh, if not working harder than me at times, right? Uh, creating them. Um, so it was another thing, you, you know, another thing you kind of had to learn. And, and um, I think I had a pretty good, go at it you know i learned you know i learned 
you know, learned some things the hard way, but, but I, you know, again, I think I finally just came back to my roots a little bit after, after Top Chef and all the celebrityness and, um, you know, started giving back, right. Starting to get involved more in the community, um, and feeling like there was a sense of home in the DC area for me. Right. I had been that kid that left Montreal, traveled to Spain, traveled to Greece, traveled to France, traveled to Florida, went to New York, went to California and, you know, and Montreal in my head was always still home. DC, everything that happened here and the, you know, I started to feel like part of a community again, which just kind of inspired me in another way. And, um, you know, I've, I've been working to try to get, not be a celebrity chef as much. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but, but it's, it's, um, you know, I've not really taken any more opportunities to do like TV or to like, just really continue this. Uh, I think my value and my calling is, is applying myself in the business a lot more, uh, and maybe being able to do something good in food policy and pair it up with like the things that I've always loved doing, which is like being creative, coming up with different concepts and like giving back and traveling. And, um, I'm less concerned with being a celebrity more than ever in my life, especially after having a child. So, okay. You said, does that make sense to you? It makes sense to me, but I'm curious about why it makes sense to you. Well, you know, it comes back to, you know, my, uh, you know, my, the, the people I looked, I propped up in my life, and used as inspirations were high-end Michelin star chefs and Anthony Bourdain, right? Like these, you know, when I was reading in culinary school, I was reading, and it's funny because Anthony would always talk so much, you know, uh, crap on, on the industry and the food network and the celebrity part of it. And there's something that really resonated with me, with him, because he's the one that coined the, you know, like this industry is a subculture, right? I resonated a lot more with that because I was that kitchen rat. I had the same kind of kitchen life that Anthony did. And, and I went to Vietnam like he did, right? Like I was just very obsessed with like this like rock star view of, of chefs. And I was attracted to that. But yet I had like this, this huge background in Michelin star chefs and like knowledge and technique. So to me, uh, uh, the less serious part of it is what I enjoyed a lot more. I didn't, I didn't love having to come in and like be super serious and want to have like, you know, I didn't want my goal to be a, uh, have to have to open a three mission star restaurant and, and the trail that you leave behind you on the way there. Right. Talking about that's in, there's a, a huge part of ego that gets you there. Right. There's a huge part of being humble and running a humble kitchen, but to get three stars and to get, there's a huge, you know, you, you kind of, leave some dirty work behind you as a chef and anyone that says they don't, I, I, I will challenge them, you know, and greatness has a dark side. And yes. I think it doesn't always get talked about. Certainly everything that you're saying, we often look up to the Michael Jordans, the Tiger Woods, the Serena Williams. I'm just going to use sports analogies. Yeah. But if you were there to watch what those people had to do, um, you know, <laughs> the sacrifice that it requires, I'm not sure people, if you said tomorrow, hey, you can be those three and here's what it's going to take, how many people would actually do it? Because yeah. all they see is the shiny celebrity of it yeah. and they don't see the behind the scenes and the human side of it, which is, it's it's grueling. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, you know, I always tell people, it's like, you know, 
there's who you feel like you want to be out, you know, who you want to be. There's who people see you as. Right. And, and then there's actually who you just really are. Right. And, and to me, like I, I felt like I have a mindset of like, I saw myself trying to be this person, you know, whatever is three Michelin, what have you. Then all, all these people saw me as this other person, you know, like past casual, the top chef guy. That's how I got my, you know, you know, that's where the struggle was for me. It's like my mindset was, it's, it's like an interesting question you asked. Like my mindset was like, I got to be this, this chef God. And then, but I didn't get any type of celebrity and, or accolades to, 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 you know, other than like my experience to say, Hey, spikes that three Michelin star chef guy, all the press and the marketing came from, Hey, spikes, this silly top chef guy. Not silly, but kind of silly, right? I got a silly ed- edit. And he opened up a burger restaurant, and he opened up a pizza restaurant, and he opened a taco restaurant. So my inner struggle was like, oh, man, like, what did I do? Like, what guy am I? I, th- I thought I was going to be that guy, but all of a sudden I'm propelled to being this guy, and this is, like, what people love. But, like, then, well, who am I really? Who who am I? Re- re- who, who, who am I? You know, like, who? And, and the answer is, is, like, I still don't know. But uh, I sure... I definitely know that I, I love the allure of, of the classic kitchen. I love it to be in my life in a certain way. Um, and I've accomplished that now. Like I'm producing a documentary on the in and Lil Washington, which is a Michelin star restaurant. We're going on Saturday for You're my birthday. Sa- <laughs> you are? Yeah. I'm going on May 8th for my sister's birthday. Don't air that because that's a surprise. But, uh, <laughs> no, but we'll, we'll wait, we'll wait to put wait. it out there. But, um, oh, you have to let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll let the guys know that you're heading there. That's awesome. So, like, I've found a way to enjoy that life. And, like, now Patrick invites me to, like, the dinners and this. And I just have a friend that just started working there as an apprenticeship. So, you know, I, I go do events that are higher end. And I do, like, my, like, the, that style of food for those events. So there's a place for it in my life. And I love it. But like this laid back spike and like doing some food policy and being able to travel and do good and having casual restaurants, uh, you know, is is more who I am. And that's why I think in the last five years, I've been able to really kind of finally start to figure myself out. There's a couple of things resonating for me, having been with athletes for so long, which is the sport is what they do. It's not who they are. And a lot of athletes, we think of athletes retiring as professionals, but a lot of athletes coming from the collegiate level, which is a lot of the athletes that I've worked with over the years, if they're field hockey or lacrosse or track or swimming, they could be done. Like yeah. They're not playing their sport anymore. And that's been their identity maybe since they were five years old. And so we often talk about, no, like the sport is what you do. It's not who you are. And the best example I give people is, you know, there are these two, I don't know if you're into pro football, American football, growing up where you yeah. grew up. So, right, you have these two tight ends that play on a world championship championship team, the New England Patriots. They're both good-looking, strong guys. One is Aaron Hernandez and one is Rob Gronkowski. They play the same position. They have tons of success, tons of money, and Aaron Hernandez goes to jail for prison and ends up killing himself, I think. And Rob Gronkowski is partying wherever he's partying. They're living very different lives. Who those two people are are very different, even though they did the same thing. And so I think that's one piece, which is your identity is not, your identity is not the same as a a chef just because you're a chef. Your identity is your character. And John Wooden had this great quote about 
you should judge yourself by your character, not by your reputation. Reputation is how others see you. Character is how you actually interact with the world. And that's stuck with me in such a profound way because whether you have successes or failures from the outside looking in, your reputation is going to be how they perceive you. That you don't control that. Exactly. You don't how you to, reacted to that failure, how you reacted to that success. That and that's your that's going to be your character. How how regardless of if people are propping you up or putting you down. Uh, and I would imagine for a chef, when you open up a new restaurant, you're going to have a critique and how that critic, what the critic says will impact how yes. people see your restaurant. But you can only spend so much time on how you're going to handle that. You have to think about how do we want to show up? How do I want to do it? So I love that idea of focusing on character instead of reputation. And that's been massive for me because I think a lot of the people that I've looked up to in my life uh, very reputation conscious and not in a bad way, like reputation wanting people to see them in a positive light. The challenge with that is in the world we live in today with social media and media in general, you don't get to dictate what your reputation is. You do get to dictate what your character is from a moment to moment basis. So uh, as you were talking, that that really resonates with and, me. Yeah, and that resonates with me too. Like my, the most important things on the way I apply myself these days is that I, I want I, I want to have a consistent character across the board in my life, you know, and how people, you know, how I really am. I want people to understand that. Um, and then, I, you know, again, I have this great belief of like manifestation, like you want it, you're going to will it. Uh, but then but don't run a, don't run anybody over while you're doing it. Right. So it's like it's this balance. And I feel like I, I finally hit like a little sweet spot in my life where you know, I'm applying myself that way and opportunities are the opportunities that I want are presenting themselves in life. And then, you know, I'm left with those opportunities and make, to make choices. So you started this conversation saying you're passionate about food and passionate about travel. Mm -hmm. You also slipped in here just now that you've got a kid mm -hmm. and you're married. Yeah. How do you, I don't like the word balance, but how do you I mean, how many restaurants are you involved with now? You've got this policy stuff. Yeah. You're, 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 there's a lot on your plate. Mm -hmm. And when we were talking before we fired up the mics, it sounded like you like having a yeah. lot of activity. How do you do that with the three-year-old and with a family life? Yeah. Well, first of all, my, my wife is amazing. She's, she's, uh, you know, uh, she's a stay at home mom. Uh, she comes from a PR background. So she, she helps with my work when she can, but, um, I have the confidence that my, my kids getting all, all the love and, and, you know, everything that he needs right now from, from my wife. And, and she really believes in me and allows me to do the things that, that I want to do. So, uh, having a great support system and a partner is, is a big piece of it. Right. Uh, uh but, Aside from that, um, you know, I love that you don't like the word balance because nor do I, right? Uh, because I don't think there's too much balance in my life right now. But I do know when the time when when the time presents itself that I need to be somewhere and be there and be into that, that it's getting my hundred percent, and that productivity on that project or what have you. Uh, is way more effective than trying to have so much balance amongst my projects, right? So, like, uh, I work really hard at giving a hundred and ten percent when I'm when I need to be somewhere. I, I you know, I work re real hard not to, you know, coming to an establishment like the St. James. I just opened the restaurant, right? I could very easily just show up, be there, and 
trying to balance my life and working on a 10 billion things, right? From a computer or a laptop and phones, right? But I don't do that. I, I stay focused. I come in. I get the job done. I give my all to the employees there. I give my all to the chef. I give my all to the founders. And I really try to like, you know, just be there at the moment. Um, and then as well, uh, I build a network of people around me um, that I very much trust. Uh, and I work hard on that relationship. Um, you know, the two chefs that have propped me up in my life and supported me with all my endeavors are uh, a guy by the name of Brian Lacayo. You would know who he is. And Mike Coletti. Um, they've been with me for 12 to 15 years off and on. Uh, you know, they filmed my top chef production tape. They opened my Vietnamese restaurant with me. They opened up four or five other Vietnamese style restaurants. Uh, one of them was at Le Cirque training me, with me back in the day. They opened up Good Stuff Eatery. They opened up We The Pizza. One of them was the chef at Bernays. One of them is the current chef at Vim and Victor that we just opened, Brian Lacayo, executive chef there. So, you know, I, I always tell people one of the, you know, what, I get this question a lot. I was like, well, guys, like I brought people along for the ride with me or those guys brought me along their ride. I don't know which way it went, but we're all in it together, right? And it's really important for me while you're developing your career that you're able to recognize the people that that are in your life that are going to be able to support you and you're going to support them as well. Um, and if you're able to, to at least be lucky enough to have a couple people like that in your lives, uh, it makes, you know, makes makes the, the style of how I approach business, which is I want to do a little bit of everything, a lot easier for you. Right. Um, you know, I could I could easily say I don't want to do anything but open this you know, 1500 square foot restaurant and I'm going to be there every single day and I don't really need anybody. And it's just going to, I call the shots and everything, but that's just not what, that's not who I am. I like, I know who I am now. Like, I don't want to do that. That's not exciting to me. No desire to open a Michelin three-star restaurant. No desire at all to open up a three Michelin star uh, restaurant. Um, you know, I have this 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 kind of thesis book, this massive binder book that I did um, while I was at the Chateau. Uh, you're supposed to fill out like a little paperwork, but I was like, no, I'm going to do this huge thing. And I took pictures of every dish and every recipe, and I had the chef sign and approve every recipe. And it's like this massive binder of all these pictures. And every once in a while, I pick it up and I go through it, and I see like myself, and I'm like, wow, like where was your head at when you're there? And I got like a small little inkling of being like, ah. Oh, let me just throw everything away right now. Tell my wife we're going, you know, we're moving somewhere. And I'm just going to open up this 45 seat restaurant. And I don't know, like, you know, maybe 10 years, 15 years from now, maybe that's something I want to do. Uh, right now for me in my life is, is, you know, like, you know, I, I want to be able to spend time with my, my son and my wife. Uh, I'm a huge believer in taking your kids on the road with you. Uh, you know, I, I know they need routine in life at a young age and we do that. But if there's a trip, to you know um france or ireland or uh, something you know uh, i want them to experience that at a, at a young age I'm, i want to get a, a world view just like i did on life um so it makes it really easy that way you know i could bring my family on the festivals or some of the events i do um but then i'm also you know uh, i'm also localizing more than ever in life so i'm really making the dmv my home and my place of business and uh, I'm not taking any single opportunity or trip. You know, I used to, one day I'd be in Jakarta and the next I'd be in Greece and, 
you know, Hawaii and all over the place, you know, taking all these different food festival opportunities or restaurant consulting opportunities. But, but now it's just about, you know, focusing a little bit more, um, and, and just kind of investing in your family and yourself. So, I mean, that's kind of what I'm trying to do. I don't, again, like, I don't know if it's, you know, it's working for me. We'll see how long it lasts, but, but, um, you know, I, I, I could say I truly, I'm more in love with the idea of being an awesome father than like having any Michelin star restaurant. And I think that at the end of the day, like you could do both. I don't know. Can you like, it's, it's hard, you know, I've read a lot of bo- chef books in my life and, uh, and the chef life is, is very hard and trying to balance that all like really amazingly is, is hard. There's some that do it and more to them, but man, it's like, it's, it's, you know, it's a constant joke. Like, you know, your other child is your restaurant or your wife or what have you. So it's, it's a lot of work. Beautiful place to stop. I just want to thank you. We just got to know each other a little bit yeah. and, Right from the get-go, you were open and, and vulnerable and uh, awesome storyteller and just really fun for me to get a sense of how you think about things and your frameworks and how you think about not just your life in the kitchen but also outside of it. So uh, thank you for sharing. Thanks for the time. Yeah, and absolutely. looking forward to many more conversations about thank food, you. travel, yeah. and mindset. Well, the funniest thing is that you're, you know, you're, I love how athletes is is your main thing is I just opened a restaurant in a sport, you know, in a sports facility. So talk about the St. James because people from outside the DC area probably won't know people in the DC area, at least people like me who, if you're on any social media platform, you've seen the video of the St. James being built. This facility is the most insane sports facility like of all time. Talk about the St. James and talk about the restaurant there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an, it's an insane, I mean, and that's not why, you know, it's an insane facility. It's 450,000 square feet. I mean, it's got two hockey rings, a basketball, eight basketball courts, largest uh, North American field house. And, you know, uh, DC United, who they, yeah. they were, they were training there. And I talked to Ben Olson, who yes. uh, has come on the podcast and Ben's love him. Everyone loves Ben. Yeah. Uh, and Ben, I'm <laughs> talking to him. So like, yeah, we're doing, uh, training and in, in the St. James and it's going awesome. He's like, I love it here. Yeah. They just signed it like, you know, they, I think they just signed a deal with us. So it's like, but that was the part I was, that, that I thought was interesting because of what you do is that, you know, here I am now in a facility trying to pave my, like the style of cuisine we're going to, we're doing in this restaurant. And it, it's so interesting to see, uh, you know, they have these combines, they had these, these guys that were up for draft, these three players, um, and they're they're constantly training, and they come and they have they're on a meal plan, so they eat our our meal plans. Like I prep up their food for them. Um, but it's funny how you said like like uh, you know like you have to be perfect in performance, and what was the the uh, perfect in preparation, preparation, adaptable in performance, and, and adaptable in performance. And then, and as you're saying these words, it's like I'm picturing, I, I see these guys training every day, and it's kind of like it's exactly that, right? They're uh, they're practicing exactly what you just said, uh, and it, it's kind of fun. You know, it's kind of great to see it all come to fruition for them. And they're having this really great opportunity to be an amazing facility. They have their meals prepped. They can go to do their spa thing, whatever. But then they are, there's also a little humility in their life where they're they're really you know they're football players. But I see their trainers taking them on the basketball court for like to shoot like you know a pickup game, and they're not really great basketball players. They're football players, but it's funny to see like in training. There's like I think he does it to show them a little humility that like hey you may be a badass on this field, 
but you're not really awesome on the basketball court. So, you know, it's interesting to see like the, these tactics and this, these balance, but listen, the St. James I think is like, uh, is a huge disruptor in the space. It's brought me an enormous amount of, of uh, pleasure just as a family man. My kids there all the time. I play on the uh, the, the uh, adult hockey league. I have a hockey game tonight. If anyone <laughs> wants in the DC area, since we can't see the Capitals anymore, no, we can't. If you want to watch Spike Mendelson play at nine fifty, but what position do you play? Uh, they throw me on defense and wherever I could fit in. I, they, you know, they they put me on whenever I can fit in. I won't play goalie anymore. Come on, you're a Canadian playing in Virginia. Yeah, you have to be able to be hold your own in that. I mean, league. I definitely hold my own. There you I'm go. definitely listen. If you're you, if you're from Montreal and you can't skate, don't tell anybody. Yeah, you're gonna get kicked out real quick but it, it's a great restaurant it's I, I can't wait to have you there i think you'd get a kick at meeting all these athletes uh and just picking their brain a little bit but we should we should probably do something there have you over for for dinner i would love to and talk about people where they can find you and and what you're up to and just yeah, give a megaphone to them uh, for my information it's really simple you can go to um chef's uh spike at chef spike.com uh you'll see uh um my entire background for my career you'll see all the concepts that i have uh, you'll see um, new things that I'm working on, things that I consult on, um, some great opportunities. So if you want a little glimpse of me, you can just go on the website and reach out to me. There's an email there. Uh, and then other than that, you can just follow me on Instagram. And Where are you on Instagram? Do you know your uh, handle? Where am I on Instagram? I'm at, uh, I'm at Chef Spike on Instagram. Cool. And I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers, Spike, Chef. Uh, this is fun. Can't wait to continue the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You know, there's this term called mise en place, right? I know, are you familiar with the, the term? It's, it's French for uh, your things need to be in order. Um, and it's very crucial to the success of your restaurant, to the success of, uh, of the way you approach the business. Uh, in, in my opinion, uh, it, it doesn't only go, it only, it doesn't just break down to like the things I need on my salad station, right? Like I need these chives, I need these salt, salt, I need these olives to make this plate. Mise en place is like, if I'm going to have a good night on the line, I'm going to have everything in order and, and in place.